teaching, but in his action. Christ has authority. And so we're going to read in Matthew chapter 9. And I'm going to back up just a little bit. Um, We're going to start in Matthew chapter 9, verse 9, and read through verse 17. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, Follow me. And Matthew rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? When he heard it, Jesus said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Then the disciples of John came to him, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skin bursts and the wine is spilled and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins, so both are preserved. All right, so this, this, this is a really rich passage. It's a little baffling because you're wondering, like, it's like miracle, 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 miracle. Hey, Jesus, talk about fasting. Kind of, kind of, like, there's a lot of things Jesus did. And the disciples, Matthew, when he wrote it, decided to include this moment in this conversation. Why, why are we talking about fasting? So in terms of, like, structure, it's a little bit, a little bit jarring. So if you're really going to understand what's going on here, you kind of need, we need to kind of just back up for a second and kind of get the big context. And like I said, we've been talking about the authority of Jesus, the authority of Jesus, not only in his teaching, but in his actions. So in chapters 5, 6, and 7, Jesus gave one of the greatest teachings, okay, I should probably say the greatest teaching on ethics um, called the Sermon on the Mount. And it was really, it's countercultural. It's, it's, I guess it's, you know, even say, kind of a, um, everybody's saying it now, it's revolutionary. Right? It really was. It was really revolutionary because the kingdom that Jesus speaks about is kind of like, like we'd say an upside-down kingdom compared to the kingdoms of this world. Because every nation, every nation in some sense, at some level, runs on the premise that the strong eat the weak. Right? That you have a, um, and well, if you want to expand your territory, one nation conquers another nation. Or if you have a enemies that threatens you, you go and crush the other nation. Or nations can exploit other nations, like take advantage of the resources. Even today, people, like some nations, take advantage of the destitute of other nations as well. Enjoy your iPhones, nice and cheap. People are paying, or there's children labor somewhere in there, probably spending all day mining material, stuff like that. So, so it's like those who are prosperous continue to get prosperous, and those who are weak tend to get crushed under the heels of those 
who have power. And the Bible is full of condemnations against us. This is not the way that God wants it to be. So what Jesus proposes is this new idea. Instead of destroying your enemies, love them. Instead of taking advantage of people, serve them. Instead of using your strengths and abilities and economic advantage to get further ahead, use your strengths, abilities, and economic advantages to serve others. And we don't. So Jesus also kind of like drills down into like the motivations about why people behave wrongly. And it's, it gets down to the motivations of our heart. Jesus gets in there and says, oh, got a problem with your marriage? It's called lust. It's the motivation of your heart. You have problems with your neighbors. You get in fights. It's because you have anger in your hearts. It's all about your motivations. Deep down inside, we are full of self-interest and pride. That I come first and I'm going to get what I'm going to get as best as I can get it. And if everybody acts that way, then you have a broken society. And so what Jesus proposes instead is a repentance. Like, okay, that's the way you're living. Turn around. Go this other way. What you need is humbleness and brokenness before God. To say, God, you alone are my delight. That God himself is our Father. And we need his love more than any other love that you could find in this world. You need him to be your meaning and fulfillment of life. And don't try to find it in other places. So you look at the society, sound ideal? Well, sure, people have come up with many, many good ideas for how society should run. Utopias. Everybody's got a utopia. There's like Plato, Republic. There's like Walden, Walden II. Skinner, Walden, Walden Everybody's got their own, right? <laughs> They have all these proposals, like, society would be good if this. And then, but the thing is that there's just like these pie in the sky, like, yeah, it would be, wouldn't it? But, but the problem still remains that this is not the way that people behave. So what makes Jesus any different than any other philosopher? What makes him different? And so he steps off that mountain and starts showing he's different. Because Jesus has more than just good ideas. He has divine authority. Because he steps off that mountain, and in chapters 8 and 9, he starts doing what no other man has done before. He cures diseases. He calms raging storms with a word. He commands demons to leave a demon-possessed man, and they have to listen and give up their prey. He heals a paralytic. And, most importantly, he forgives sins. That's at the beginning which is actually getting to the crux of the issue, that he forgives sins, and he has the authority to do so. Because the Bible tells us, sickness, death, corruption, exploitation, natural disasters, calamity, everything you see that's wrong in this world is a byproduct of our sin. It's a byproduct of our rebellion. Really? Really? When we put ourselves as the center of our little universes and try to fulfill our desires in whatever way we see fit, instead of placing God at the center of our lives and finding our fulfillment foremost in him, that is 
what God calls cosmic rebellion, and it has cosmic consequences. Romans 8 tells us that God cursed this world. God did it. Cursed the world to demonstrate that there is something wrong. There's something horribly wrong with humanity. He demonstrates to us through all, by just, God could keep hurricanes from happening, but he doesn't. He shows you that there's something wrong with this world. He could, you know, someone wants to do some corrupting practice, stroke, down, dead, right? But he doesn't. To show us that things are wrong, that we need help. So then Jesus comes, and get this, he starts reversing everything. Chaos in the world, he starts undoing the chaos. Sea, going to sink a boat, he stops the storm. People are sick, he heals them. Jesus is undoing the effects of the curse. And he could do that because he forgives sin. Forgiveness, I was just thinking about this the other day, like, it's really easy to like ask for forgiveness, like, God, please forgive me, with no intention of like doing anything different. Like, oh God, that's so, I'm sorry I did that. But I'm gonna keep doing that anyways, right? You can you can kind of give it like, you know, I do this. I see my daughters do this all the time. I'm sorry, Dad. Uh huh. <laughs> like five more minutes to see what's happening. In five more minutes, are you still taking your toys from your sister, right? Like he's like even though you you know you feel like you should be sorry, you don't want to actually turn and do anything different. And so there's rifts, rifts, and most importantly, there's a rift in our relationship with God. Our sin keeps us out of fellowship, out of community with God. So when Jesus comes and forgives us, what he's doing is he's bringing us back into community with him. And we see this just last week because Jesus took a low-down, no-good scoundrel named Matthew, also Levi, but we'll call him Matthew, who was a tax collector who made his business exploiting people blatantly, and everybody knew it, to give money to the Roman uh, captors who are like oppressing Israel. He's making them richer, and he's getting richer along with them. He's, I mean, if you want to talk about public enemy, number one, tax collectors. I mean, you already have a problem with tax collectors, right? But like amplify it by like, what if you, you know, what if a tax collector was taking money for Russia and for himself? Like, off of you, right? You'd be like, I do not like this person. So Jesus says, oh, yeah, this person, he's exploiting people. Oh, yeah, he's doing something wrong. Follow me. Follow me. Give it up. Follow me. And, and there's something. It doesn't really give you, like, what's going on in Matthew's mind, but there's something about Jesus that's just attractive. And Matthew says, I'll give up my riches. I'll give up my power. I'll give this all up and be homeless with Jesus, and it will be absolutely worth it. So Matthew drops everything and joins back in community with God. And really don't miss like how radical that was. Because, I mean, it's one thing to like, here's my enemy, I'm showing him a little mercy. It's quite another thing to say, hey, why don't you join my closest group of friends? One, one writer said, we can imagine the conversion which this call demanded not only of Matthew, but of the disciples who had to accept him and create community with him. Could you imagine? Like, here's this, you know, no good scoundrel. And Jesus says, hey, why don't you join us? And Peter's like, um, what? You want us to be, do what? Be friends with this guy? No. It was one thing for Jesus to show his mercy to outsiders, as he does in the other stories. It was quite another 
and the extreme exposure of vulnerability for Jesus to call him and welcome the tax collector as one of his own. But he does that with all of us. If, if, if he forgives your sin, he's not just saying, I forgive your sin, I'll go do whatever you want. He's like, no, come and have a relationship with me again. Okay. And now it's getting to the problem of this passage. Because then he calls his tax collector and says, hey, why don't you join my group? Why don't you be in fellowship with me? And then he goes and has a party. And a whole bunch of, as the um, Jews were there, more tax collectors and sinners join in, and Jesus is having a good time. Maybe for effect, it'd be like, Jesus went and hung out with the thugs and the sleazy lawyers that helped them, and he's having a party with those people. And he starts to um, get some pushback, some raised eyebrows, like, Jesus, what are, what, what, what are you doing? So there's two pushbacks. One was from the Pharisees, and the others are from John's disciples. So first of all, the Pharisees. Now the Pharisees, they were, I mean, these were like the most self-disciplined people you probably ever come across. I mean, you probably can't even hold a candle to like the self-disciplined regiment that they put themselves through. You can try, I bet you can't do it, or maybe some of you can. I can't get up at five and read my Bible sometimes, like dragging out of bed chewing on a toast, chugging coffee, reading a couple of verses on the way out the door. But these guys were like, they got their lives under control. And they really valued the fact that they had their lives under control. So the Pharisees, they're looking at this party. So, uh, Jesus, um, you're talking about this kingdom of God, and this is what it looked like? These people? I don't think I want anything to do with this kingdom and this party. Jesus isn't really separating him from the riffraff and the filth of this world. In fact, Jesus seems to be diving right into the underbelly, getting right into the thick of it. And Jesus turns to them, he's like, well, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Which would really be like, the Pharisees are sick too. They just don't realize it. He says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. So go and learn what this means. Pharisees, teachers, I think you missed the point of this passage. He quotes from Isaiah, Hosea, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. We are all sinners. We all need this physician. But in other words, Jesus and the Pharisees both agree that these people have a lifestyle problem. They both agree that there's a problem. But the difference is in their response. The Pharisees are moved by disgust, disdain, like you are someone else I don't want to participate with. They have a go-fix-it-yourself attitude with these people. The Pharisees feel like, if, if I can do this, then you can do this too. Like, you need self-discipline, you need self-restraint, you need to start fasting like us, you need to start praying like us, you need to do all these things, and you can do it. Just do it. Right? Jesus, however, is moved by mercy. He gets in close. He sits with them, drinks with them, parties with them, eats with them, laughs with them. And yes, even in all that, he still calls them to repentance and to follow him. He came to call sinners. Okay, and then there's the second group, which is actually the passage that we're dealing with now. Okay, so the second group, kind of viewing this party, these are John's disciples. It says, and then John's disciples came to him saying, 
why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Okay, so first of all, it's a little strange that John's disciples are coming and challenging Jesus. Because John the Baptist, you remember, John the Baptist was there to prepare people to meet Jesus. And his, and his, his, thing, and his message was, repent. You who think you're righteous, you're not. Repent, you need Jesus. And so a Pharisee show up at his party and he says, you brood of vipers. Now all of a sudden the Pharisees and John's disciples are both kind of looking at Jesus and they seem to be on the same side, kind of the enemy of my enemy is my friend. And so there's kind of this weird like little relationship going on. So John's disciples are sitting there looking at him saying, so um, Jesus, you're partying, huh? Instead of fasting. <laughs> Instead of fasting. Now, John understood this. When Jesus came on the scene, when John, okay, when John first came on the scene, like, like, Israel had been waiting for a prophet forever. Like, when's God going to send a prophet? When God's going to send a prophet? 300 years of silence, and then a prophet shows up. Everybody is excited. People are coming out by the droves to go see, finally, a prophet into the wilderness. But then John knew that he was just preparing the way for Jesus to come. And as soon as Jesus showed up, okay, that prophet sees to start receding. Like, his ministry is pretty much over. He's, he's going, he's still calling people to repentance, but the point is to go see Jesus. And so John had said, my ministry must decrease in order that Christ's ministry might increase. I'm here to show off Jesus. Now, at that point in John's ministry, Jesus is getting popular. John's not so popular. Jesus got the mega church, and then, like, John's got the little podunk church in well, rural California, right? And he's like, he's like... <laughs> It's like kind of bummer to be John's disciples if you had great expectations for John. And then we don't know if this has happened yet. It's not that John is going to be arrested soon, or he may be arrested already by Herod because John was calling out a unlawful lifestyle of adultery. And John's sitting outside the palace saying, repent, king, repent, king, repent, king, and finally it's like, arrest that guy. And then, and then like pretty soon, John's going to be executed. So, I mean, if you're John's disciple, it's a really a bummer day to be John's disciple because things are just seem like they're all going down. So for them, like, dismay and despair and all these things that are wrong with the world, and Jesus is having a party. And so you hear, like, this underlying challenge. Like, Jesus is partying. John's disciples say, why don't you fast? In other words, they're kind of challenging. Your actions are inconsistent with the situation. Jesus, we've got problems. And we need God to intervene with our problems. We've got Roman captors. We've got tax collectors who are exploiting us. When are you going to, you know, we need God to move and take care of this issue. And we need to pray and fast that God does something. Well, God was doing something wasn't he? Because, just look, here's Jesus. Tax collectors giving up their corrupt practices. People who are sick no longer being sick. God is doing something. He's doing it in Jesus. And these people are missing it. They're missing it. Now, they're talking about fasting. Now, what's the point of a fast? I don't know, like, I guess every, in one sense, like every major religion fasts to some degree. Now, the reason for the fasting often is different. In the Old Testament, 
the reasons for, for fasting would be something like remorse. Like, you, like, there's several, many stories. God sending a prophet to some people saying, you know, you're going to be judged because of the you know, evil practices that you're doing. And they're like, oh. And they like, come to their senses. And so they repent with praying, and they don't eat, and they don't drink, and sometimes they cover themselves with ashes and sackcloth. Say, just like going before a king and saying, I am nothing, I am nothing, forgive me, I'm so sorry. Now sometimes people, like, you know, we've talked about this, they went in with bat, like, they're just giving kind of lip service, like, oh God, I am so sorry, please don't strike me down. But no real desire to repent. And, you know, in those moments, God knows the heart. He wouldn't, he wouldn't relent from his disaster. You know, Israel at times like, God, why don't you do something? He's like, yeah, you're, you're fasting, but you're not repenting. The disaster's still coming. But sometimes people actually genuinely repent. And whenever you genuinely repent, turn to God and say, I am sorry. I want to turn from my evil ways. You are always met with forgiveness. From the greatest king to the Assyrian Nineveh, enemies of God, who said, nope, we're sorry, we'll stop. God says, okay, I forgive you. I will relent from this disaster. So one reason for fasting is to express repentance or remorse. And the other thing was to express like a distress, like you saw something horrible happen and you're moved. You see something like Job's friends saw Job's life fall apart and they were moved, and so they sat there with him, didn't eat or drink. Or you see some client, and you just, it's like you're so moved that you're just like, God, this is so horrible. And that kind of that, that expression of, of distress is coming out in fasting. Now, these are not, fasting is not bad. Fasting in and of itself, when it's done right, with good motives, is a thing that honors God. One person put it this way, fasting is like the exclamation point at the end of your prayer. You're praying, and you want to put an exclamation point on that to say, God, we need you so much. We need you so much in this situation. I will go without food. I will go out drink waiting for you. So John's disciples were missing something. They're missing something. They're so caught up in their plight that they failed to see God's solution. So Jesus says, fasting? Can the wedding guests mourn? as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. They're fasting to express repentance. They're fasting to express distress, and they want God to move, and here is Jesus moving. The bridegroom, as it were, has come. Open your eyes. All these people are looking back to the Old Testament, God promising Flourishing, flourishing, flourishing. And wherever Jesus is, there's flourishing. He's like, it refers to him as like a light in the darkness. It's like he's walking in the desert, and whatever he is, like an oasis is springing up around him. Like, in Jesus, the kingdom has come. Tax collectors are leaving the corrupt practices. Sinners are leaving their destructive lifestyles. Roman oppressors are acknowledging Jesus as king. That happened with the centurion. If our fasting is pleading that God would come and act, then Jesus is the ultimate response because he is Emmanuel. One of his titles was Emmanuel, which means God 
with us. John's disciples had, BJ coined this phrase, so I'll just use it, joyless religion. There was no joy. There's no delight. Now, God grants that a time you can be joyful and despairing at the same time. We'll look at some verses in a little bit. But there are times that you can be like confused, like that conflictedness in you. Some days, like, there's joy, there's deep joy, not happy joy, deep joy. Even though you still see things all kind of mess up in the world, and you're, you're like, God, will you please act? Will you please move? You can have both emotions. But there's a problem when all you feel is despair, 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 because God has called us to delight and to have joy. In the Psalms, everywhere, these people crying to God, but in their crying, finding joy in him. Martin Lloyd-Jones, he was a pastor in England during World War II. One of my favorite stories of any pastor is his first sermon. The Luftwaffe were like dropping bombs on London, and he's not stopping a sermon. <laughs> he's just going. He's like, bomb's going to fall, bomb's going to fall. You sit here and finish the sermon with me, right? Because we trust in God, not in chariots, right? Anyway, so he was saying like, what signal are you sending, Christians, when you, are, you come to church and all you are are dour? And there's no joy. And I mean, what does that say to someone who's also like, coming, turning to God, saying, where, where is hope? And they come in this group of people, well, there's no hope here, right? Like, in a sense, like, we need to be a people who have tasted and seen that God is good, and we rejoice and we delight in that. So when people see it, they can say, ah, there is joy. Okay, but, but, he also says the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. So he says, while I am here, it is completely appropriate to be joyful, celebrate, party. The kingdom is here. I am here, reversing the effects of sin. Rejoice. And, it, and so, you know, we do like one-night parties for weddings. Man, we've got it wrong. The Jews would do like day-long parties, like multiple day-long parties for like weddings. Like, party, 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 party. So he's like, in this span of time, it is appropriate to rejoice. It is inappropriate to be mourning. But there is a day coming when it will be appropriate to mourn again. Because the bridegroom will be taken away. So, like, you're having a party. The bridegroom's there. Bridegroom's taken away. Oh, that's a problem. (laughs) Can't party anymore. And this is the first time Look at Matthew, that Jesus starts alluding to his crucifixion. He's starting to look forward to it. Jesus knows his crucifixion is coming. And he's saying that there's going to be a moment when he is forcibly taken from them. So, like, we're seeing all the promised blessings of the kingdom coming to bear. There's a party, and all of a sudden, God leaves the party. He's saying, what's going on? Jesus could, Jesus absolutely could have completely fulfilled his kingdom 2,000 years ago. He could have been crucified, taken care of sin, rose from the dead, say, 
kingdom in its fullness now. So that thing that we, the Bible tells us to look forward to in the future, that revelation when, when Christ comes to earth again, and the effects of fall are completely and finally eradicated forever and ever, amen. He could have done it, but he didn't. He paused. Why? Because the promise was that through the nation Israel would it be a blessing that would go to all the world. So, so like, here's Israel getting fixed. But Jesus says, no. It is not enough that this should be for one small pocket of the world. No, this gospel has got to go out to all the nations. It is too light a thing for one nation and must go to all the nations. So as a Gentile, I appreciate. <laughs> I guess I wouldn't have been born, but okay. So I appreciate life, and I appreciate the fact that God let the gospel go to every corner of the world, and it's still reaching. It's still reaching. And at that time, when the fullness of the nations come in, then the bridegroom will return. But he'll be taken away, and in that time, there will be a time to fast. Now, then Jesus says, like, this is the part, like, I've scratched my head for a long time on this one. Like, okay, so I get this. The bridegroom will go, will go away. You can fast. Then he does two more word pictures. Like, sometimes you just like, it's like, I, when I teach my classes, I'm a teacher, by the way, for those who don't know, and, like, when you answer a question with a riddle, students look at you and go, like, why are you doing this to me? Or you answer, ask a question with a question. You're like, can you just give me the answer, please? Like, but Jesus, he gives like two more of these word pictures. And he's sitting there going like, oh, man, why is this coming up? So in verse 16, he says, No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away in the garment, and the worst tear is made. Neither is new wine skin put into old wine, oh, excuse me, new wine put into an old wine skin, if it is, the skin bursts and the wine is spilled and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins, so both are preserved. Now, the picture is clear enough, right? But what's the point? Like, Jesus, what's the point? What he's, what he's contrasting is so this idea of the new and the old. A new thing has come. There was a culture, this, this idea of Judaism which had this culture and practice and dress and scriptures on your frontlets and on your doors, and you eat certain things, we don't eat other things, and all these things that made you culturally distinct to be a Jew, to show that you are God's people. That's an old way, an old culture. You fasted a certain way, and that's going to change. Because a new is coming. Like those people were waiting for the Messiah, showing that the Messiah is coming through their lineage. And then the Messiah comes and says, okay, time to grow up. Time to move on. There is a new thing coming, a new culture with new practices created by the Messiah who came. I hope one day to do a sermon through the book of Acts. Um, I think the first half of Acts could be subtitled, quote, how the Jews and non-Jews found that being put together in a community was a lot harder than expected something that we struggle with all the time. Like, God puts you in community with people that you don't necessarily like. Like, well, if we weren't Christians, I'm not sure I'd be hanging out with you. But we're brothers and sisters, so we're going to make this work. But there were problems. Like, Jews don't eat pork. And God says, go eat the pork. I don't want to eat the pork. <laughs> it's like, go eat the pork. Sit with them. Remember the book of Galatians? Like, the whole book of Galatians, I love it. 
Like, what's the issue? Jews and Gentiles are not sitting at a table eating with each other. God says, that's not what I created. I created one people. One people. You're going to sit together, and you're going to be friends and love each other and eat each other's food and have fellowship with each other because I am a God who reconciles relationships. So the Jews... Like I said that. So the Jews, I mean, he's not saying give up everything. Just give up the things that, that separate you from the Gentiles. And Gentiles are not, they have to give up some things, but not everything. Like you can still be, in some ways, your culture is your culture. But in that, he creates a new community with new ethics and a new way of behaving towards one another. So what does this have to do with fasting? Well, it seems that he's saying is fasting is going to take on a different and fuller meaning. Okay, so quick aside, just real quick, because I know some of you are probably thinking this, because if you've heard this discussion, should Christians fast? Because it seems like there's kind of two positions here. It seems like Jesus is saying um, the time that he's referring to, so like there will be a time when the bridegroom is taken, and in that time you'll fast. It seems like it's when he's crucified, he's in the ground for three days, and that would be the time, appropriate time for mourning and fasting. But then the implication is when Jesus rises from the dead, he's back. Okay, party resumes. And you don't need to fast anymore. Um, the other position is, it's a little bit of both. Like, yes, he's forcibly taken. He rises again, but then he ascends into heaven. And so you fast because the bridegroom isn't here in his fullness. And so which way does it go? Uh, we hear it. Redwood Christian Fellowship, we go with the second position. Um, I think it's helpful that you see in Acts that the disciples fast. The disciples fast. So if, if, if the implication was Jesus saying, when I'm in the ground, you may fast, but when I rise, it's inappropriate to mourn, then you wouldn't really expect the disciples to be fasting, but yet they do. And then beyond that, um, we do have letters that churches wrote to each other very early on. In the, it, so the disciples fasted, and the churches they founded fasted, and the church has always been fasting from that point on. So it doesn't seem like their understanding of that passage was just for those three days. So the idea, so we take the position, okay, so this is the end of my side. Yes, it is appropriate at times to fast. Jesus expected it. He said in the Sermon on the Mount, when you fast, as if it will happen. Well, he's not talking about now because you know his disciples didn't fast. So he's looking to some point in the future. When you fast, do it privately. And then he's talking about now. There will be a time that you'll fast. Okay. But if there is to be fasting, then there is something new about it, something different. So um, I'll quote this. This comes from a book called Hunger for God, John Piper. So either this will make, like, this is classic John Piper. Either this will really make sense to you, or you can be like, uh-huh. Because that's just his writing style. Either you get him or you don't. But hopefully you'll get this. So he wrote a book on fasting. He says, quote, We have tasted the power of the age to come. And our fasting is not because we are hungry for something that we have not experienced, but because the new wine of Christ's presence is so real and so satisfying. We must have all that it is possible to have. The newness of our fasting is this. Intensity comes not because... We have never tasted the wine of Christ's presence because we have tasted it so wonderfully by his spirit and cannot now be satisfied until the consummation of joy 
arrives. The new fasting, the Christian fasting, is a hunger for all the fullness of God, aroused by the aroma of Jesus' love. That was helpful to me. So fasting, so remember, like fasting, what does it express? Like repentance? Well, if you're, you're fasting to repent, you know that forgiveness is found in Jesus Christ. It's not like this, I wonder what God's going to do about this. You can look at the cross and say, Christ has died for me. It is a repentance that is mine, I may have it. Which, by the way, in all those letters and all the times we see fasting after Jesus, they didn't actually ever fast for repentance. So I don't do that. But there's a fasting to express distress and mourning. And I do think that's appropriate. Because as Paul put it, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. You see the, the tension, the tension in the Christian life? So we have joy, but yet there's despair at the same moment. And But always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. So it's a a despair with an absolute hope that if Jesus came, he died, he rose from death, and promised he's coming again, he's coming again. And you know he's going to set all to right. So yes, there are days that I am distressed and heartbroken over this world. And I feel like the more I get to know about what's going on on this earth, the more I feel like there's more to be sad about and be crippled by despair. But God has not called us to pray and fast in despair, but to pray and fast with the knowledge that he is doing something about it. Isaiah 58. So Israel saying, God, you're not hearing our fast. Why aren't you responding? And God says, okay, this is what I want fasting to be about. So he says, is not this the fast that I choose to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke and let the oppressed go free, to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover him and to not hide yourself from your own flesh? like your brother or sister or family. Then shall your light break forth like the dawn, and your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call, and the Lord will answer, and you shall cry, and he will say, Here I am. If you take away the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger and the speaking of wickedness, if you pour yourself out for the hungry, and satisfy the desire of the afflicted. Then shall your light rise in the darkness, and your gloom shall be as noonday. And the Lord will guide you continually, and satisfy your desires in a scorched place, and make your bones strong. And you shall be like a watered garden, a spring of water, whose waters do not fail. We are the body of Christ. The church is the body of Christ, the light to the world, the city on a hill. And we have this gospel this good news, as Paul would put it in jars of clay, our weak, pathetic little selves, in order to demonstrate that God is surpassingly great so that us, with our weak, little, bumbling 
themselves can speak the gospel, can share the gospel, and people's lives are transformed. And it's God who is doing it. So there are times to fast. There are times to rejoice. And as we wait for the bridegroom, we strive. Brothers and sisters, we strive by the power he gives us, recognizing that we need him more than you need food. We need him more than you need water. And when you see this, when you taste this, this is eternal life, that you would know the Father in Jesus Christ, whom he has sent. So we get to celebrate with food and drink. As we celebrate the death of Christ, it is not a time to fast, it's a time to rejoice. So let's join together and rejoice. If the ushers will come forward, worship team.
us, thank you. The Father's wrath completely satisfied. Jesus, thank you. Once your enemy, now sit and ask your table, Jesus, thank you. says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Lord, that you reconciled us to you. Lord, that now we can sit at your table and feast, to have fellowship with you, to enjoy not just quantity of life, but quality. Lord, that you could be the center of our lives, the fullness of joy. But Lord, we know, again, confessing that we are easily led astray at times. Lord, that there are other things that capture our attention other priorities that get in the way of knowing you, loving you. And God, we ask that you would help us, satisfy us. Lord, when we come to your word, give us a desire for your word. And when we come to your word, show us glorious things that we may gaze and feast on who you are. Lord, let us be lights to this world. Lord, help us to in our actions and our words, Lord, to share the gospel, Lord, to see the afflicted and get involved to break the chains, Lord, for that is something you desire us to be and to do. We ask for your help. We ask for your strength. Lord, be with us, we pray, in Christ's name. Amen. We stand as we close. So as always, there is a time of fellowship. We have coffee, food. You never know what's going to be back there. I've never been disappointed. So take some time. Again, we are a family, right? That God's called us to sit at the table together. We're not just reconciled to God, but we're reconciled to each other. So spend time with each other. And Bob? Okay, so we are going to close with a doxology. Acapella. So, right? Yeah. 
Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost.